You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Why don't we stand? We'll read it together. Romans 12, 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Let's pray. This is the word of the Lord God, and we believe it. This is your revelation of yourself to us, and you're showing us uh, who you are and what you desire from us. But Lord, we thank you that this is not a call for us to just try really hard and white knuckle it and just be a bunch of good people and moralists. Um, but Lord, it's, it's uh, fruit of what happens when we spend time with our Savior, just loving on Him and being loved by Him. And so I pray that you would do a work of your Spirit in our church of drawing men and women and teenagers close to you, uh, that they might um, just model this Christian behavior in light of your mercy. Teach us, instruct us, correct us, rebuke us, equip us, all those things today by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Go ahead and be seated. Uh, tonight, uh, today, this morning, whatever it is, uh, we will be looking at the Christian's behavior in light of God's mercy. Uh, it all starts in chapter 12, verse 1, uh, where we are shown what our relationship with God should be like uh, in, relation, uh, in light of God's mercy. Mercy, Romans chapter 1 says, uh, we should be giving our bodies up, and, and literally our bodies, our eyes, ears, mouth, nose, all of our appendages, all of our members should be given up as worship uh, instruments to the Lord. Um, and that's chapter 12, verse 1. And everything else that we read in the chapter stems from a relationship with God that is made available through the mercy of God. And so then we see the relationship with our Christian brothers and sisters and the use of the gifts within the church uh, being encouraged uh, after verse 3. And, uh, and then in the latter part of the chapter, kind of starting about verse 15, we're going to see our fam familial and our friendships and our neighbors and coworkers, all these relationships uh, and, and how we should be treating each other, what our behavior should be like. So there's basically this progressive impact that goes out from verse one, like rings from the center, uh, similar to, you know, an earthquake zone, you know, with those rings, just shock waves shooting out, or when a rock is thrown into a pond and just the ripple effect. Um, that's what we have from intimate communion with the Lord, offering our bodies up is living sacrifices. So as we look at all of this behavioral encouragement, we don't want to leave the supply of the behavior, the source, which is God. And so what we have in this chapter is what love looks like on the social level. You know, we say we love everyone, but really Paul says, show me the love. Show me the love. And, and this is all ways to show 
the love. This love is costly love. You know, it's been said you don't know what's in a sponge until it's being squeezed. And here, a lot of this love comes out of tough relationships, uh, persecution, uh, being chewed up and spit out, um, you know, going through times of mourning and suffering. And so a lot of this love, it's love that comes from cost or it's love that comes from suffering, being tested and, and reacting to that testing. But Paul says, basically, this is what your life will look like if Jesus is the center of your life. Belief turning into character and actually doing the things that the Lord asks. And so here we have a little bit of an outline of uh, who we need to love. Uh, which will be people that are going through tragedy, difficulty, people that might hate you, people that oppose you. Uh, We see in this chapter how we're to love them and how we're to respond to them and even why we would love them. And, And at the end of verse 21, there's just this key that we're not to be overcome by evil or overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, You know, our behavior is very powerful to this dying world. As Matthew chapter 5 verse 13 says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're also the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now these are words spoken to disciples, not saying be salt. Come on, people, be salt. Come on, be light. But no, with the Holy Spirit in you, you are salty people. You know, you are people that bring flavor to the world. You are people that bring preservation and healing to the world. Uh, you are light. And so don't quench what the light should be doing in, in you, but set it out and give light to all who are in the house. Our conduct, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.12, um, should be honorable among those that aren't saved. He uses the word Gentiles here. Uh, But our conduct should be honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So, you know, Peter says, even if you are spoken of and and wickedness is spoken of you, people are going to see that, man, this is a Romans 12 guy. This is a Romans 12 gal. You know, where am I hearing these rumors? It's not true. These are good works, and it glorifies the Lord in the day of visitation. Um, unbelieving men can be won by their wives and their good conduct, 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us. And so, you know, as we look at chapter 12, this practical outworking of the love of Christ, there's very practical diligence uh, to that. And so verses 12 through 21, and hate to spoil it, we're just getting through verse 14 today. Uh, We see this street-level, practical approach to love. A big key to it all, and you see this whenever you get into the practical chapters, is that it's not by self-motivation or having a big motivational speaker come in, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. 
We need to be filled with the Spirit to live out the practical implications of the gospel. And so let's dig into verse 12 today. You remember last week, uh, we, we spoke of the teaching style of the rabbis and how uh, their teaching style was called stringing beads. You remember that? Uh, because the rabbis would just throw out these quick little pithy statements, you know, uh, and use those statements to teach people uh, just by stating. And, and that's kind of what Paul does here. He's stringing beads, just these short little rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, just these great exhortations towards Christian diligence that we all need to hear. Uh, rejoicing in hope and patient in tribulation, verse 12 says, you know, Christian, their behavior should be joyful patient, prayerful, no matter how adverse the circumstances might be. There should be a rejoicing or a cheerfulness. Uh, like, you know, my, my wife was an OSU cheerleader when we started dating. Uh, so I went to a lot of cheer events. And then I went to high school cheer events for her sister. Sad to say, I've seen my share of cheerleading, you know. And, but you got to give it to, you know, cheerleader Charlie out there with their pink bow on that there is some joy expressed uh, for her team, you know, the, the, the smile is, you know, lifted up high from upper cheekbone to upper cheekbone. And, uh, and that's the uh, heart that should be expressed through Christians because we've been saved from our sin by a gracious, merciful redeemer uh, who will never leave us or forsake us. And so we can have joy. We can be patient in tribulation. Uh, if you're a horse racing fan or modern day movie fan, there was a, a horse, uh, racehorse named Secretariat who uh, won the Kentucky Derby. And as, I don't remember if it was a he or she, sorry, um, as he uh, ran this one mile race, every quarter mile lap, he would get stronger and faster and, you know, until he, he won the race. Uh, and it's the same with Christians. As time goes on, even as the adverse trial and endurance is worked out in us, uh, man, there should be this, this strength being manifested by the Holy Spirit. Um, Charles Hodge says the idea of faithfulness is communicated here uh, through this rejoicing in hope, the patient in tribulation. There's perseverance and ardor in the pursuit of any goal, being on fire in the midst of uh, suffering and serving even when there's a satanic opposition. Now, we see in this same sentence of verse 12 that we're to continue steadfastly in prayer. Uh, Martin Luther said there is uh, the vocal prayer of which it is presently the custom to say that a virtual intention is sufficient. A nice little cover for laziness and negligence. And I like that because that's still happening today. Just like, well, I've got a good thought or a good intention, but I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to hit my knees, you know, and, and really we've just resorted towards, you know, um, maybe good thoughts rather than diligent uh, labor of prayer. Now, um, don't get me wrong, like the popcorn prayers, man, those can be good, right? Praying without ceasing, but there's also good times of, you know, hitting the ground, hitting the dust, and, and laboring diligently in prayer, uh, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Uh, he goes on to say, Martin Luther, for on the basis of this in the first place, they must by force tear themselves from the good intention, and then being satisfied with this, they immediately give up every other attempt. So in this passage, Paul is emphasizing that Christians ought to engage in frequent as well as diligent prayer 
For Luther says to be uh, constant means not only to take a great deal of time, but also to urge, to incite, and to demand in prayer. For just as there is no work for which the Christian ought to be more frequent, so no other work that requires more labor and effort and therefore is more efficacious and fruitful. So this steadfast prayer life, as Luther is saying, man, we are urged to be very diligent in prayer, very frequent, hardworking in prayer. Yeah, the level of of diligence is up there for this practice, but the reward and the fruit is very, love the word, efficacious, very powerful, very fruitful. And so Paul wasn't the only proponent of a steadfast prayer life. Neither was Martin Luther. Uh, We've got a dude named Jesus in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. It says, he spoke a parable to them that men ought to always pray and not lose heart, saying there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard men. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Man, if an unjust judge who has no regard for men, doesn't really care about men, isn't, isn't walking in the justice of the Creator, you know, if he hears persistence and finally yields and gives the, the widow what she wants, how much more the holy, just God who loves his people You know, a few months ago, we looked at prayer and we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane account in Jesus's life. And when he was praying, he took his core group of disciples, Peter, James, and John to pray with him. He said, stay here a while and pray. I'll be, I'll be back in a little bit. And he went a stone's throw from them. And when he came back from praying, the boys were asleep. And so he nudged them awake. What are you sleeping? You know, wake up, you know, Uh, the flesh is willing, but this, uh, this, yeah. Flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing, or something like that. You know, and then he walked away again, coming back only to find them asleep again. And, and his expression is just, what? Could you not stay awake and pray with me one hour? As Jesus says here in Luke 18, when Jesus comes back, if he came back today, would he find faith in this church? I mean, the context there is with prayer. The context is with diligent prayer. And what of you? Is there diligent prayer in your life? If he were to come this afternoon, would he really find faith in the earth? The earliest African converts to Christianity were very earnest and regular in their private devotional life and prayer time. And each one reportedly had separate spots in a grassy thicket where they would pour out their heart to God, often on their face and on their knees. There were several paths to these little Bethels, these little sanctuaries in the grass that became distinctly marked. And when any one convert began to decline in his devotional prayer life, it was soon apparent to others. They would then kindly remind him saying, 
brother, the grass grows on your path yonder. Is the grass growing on your path? Man, I hope we have just worn out grassy yards, you know, just ripped apart from our prayer times. Like, that's where that guy prays, you know, in his front yard. That's, it's all ripped apart. Or is there grass growing in your prayer spot? The Apostle James was known to be a man of prayer. And, and many nicknamed him Old Camel Knees. <laughs> Maybe it was just Camel Knees. It sounds better when you throw Ol in front of it. Camel Knees. The Apostle James. Apparently, he spent so much time on his knees in prayer that it caused these great calluses to build up, and, and he'd have knobby knees like a camel's. And he had a role model in prayer. The guy's name was Elijah. And he tells us in 1 Kings, uh, he speaks of the 1 Kings account. So let's look at this 1 Kings account of his prayer role model, Elijah. Um, you guys know the story, you know, and if you don't know it, read 1 Kings 18. It's, it's great drama, true story. I've uh, been to the mountain myself where Elijah basically has a duel between God and, and the false god of Baal. And the false prophets of Baal would build an altar, kill a bull, and, and try to get Baal to light this altar on fire. And after all day of them praying to their God and cutting themselves and dancing around, uh, Elijah just starts laughing at them and just says, you know, what, is he going to the bathroom or is he on a business trip? Where's your God? And he says, that's it, be quiet. And he has just gallons and gallons of water come and dumped on top of his altar so that if it lit on fire, there'd be no doubt it wasn't man, but that it was God. And he just says, Lord, show him your stuff. You know, a big fire from heaven comes down and just lights this altar on fire, licks up the water, licks up the dust, consumes the sacrifice. 450 false prophets were killed that day down by the brook. And, uh, and then this, this period of time of idolatry in Israel kind of comes to a standstill for a little bit. And, um, and a period of famine that Elijah had, had declared and, and drought uh, is about to end after this victory. And so Elijah says to Ahab, who is on the false prophet side, he says, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the abundance of rain. This drought's going to end. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, go up now and look to the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And seven times he said, go again. And then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops. You know, it happened in the meantime, the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was heavy rain. You know, Camel Knees loved that story. He loved that story so much that he says in James chapter five, the epistle that he wrote at the end of verse 16, that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Let's see if I can remember the amplified version of this verse. The dynamic, heartfelt petition of a righteous man makes much power available, dynamic in its working. Old Camel Knees is saying, pray, pray. And then he goes, my, my role model, Elijah, was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. 
James was a proponent of steadfast, continual, heartfelt prayer, much like the widow that Jesus told the parable of. There's another, I think it's Luke 15, a parable of a friend that was persistent in waking his buddy up to get some grub in the middle of the night. The Lord, in his word, says, be diligent in your prayer. And he sympathizes with us. He knows we're just men. He knows we're just but dust. He knows we get distracted. And he says, Elijah was a guy with a nature just like ours. I mean, you wake him up early for a morning prayer time. And if he hasn't had his Folgers crystals, he's a total jerk, you know, in the middle of prayer. But, but they can sympathize. And, and we can sympathize with them. And we're just called and exhorted to be men and women of prayer. Is there grass growing in your prayer spot? Do you have camel's knees? I pray that you do. Some of our carpets have big padding underneath them, so find somewhere rough to pray. Uh, verse 13, moving on, stringing beads. Distributing, you know, you're like, Rory, this is kind of random stuff. I'm sorry, Paul was a little random here, so just following by example here. So, so now we go from being faithful and diligent in prayer to verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints and being given to hospitality. Uh, this doesn't just speak of uh, sharing your stuff, but it really speaks of becoming a partaker with people in their trials and in their rough times. You know, we are to be distributing our resources. We're to be givers financially, materially, with our time, with our gifts. We're to be giving. You know, someone once said that uh, the Christian man, the Christian woman, uh, is not to be a storehouse, but a distribution warehouse. We don't keep all of our things for ourselves, but we are to be distributing them on out there. But the real emphasis here is taking part in the needs of God's people, regarding those needs as your own. Hebrews thirteen sixteen says, don't forget to do good and to share with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. First Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And then this continuation of verse 13 is, is that we're to be given to hospitality. So sharing with the needs of the saints, you know, as they are suffering and struggling, we're, we are giving resources, but we're also partaking in the suffering with them, and we're being hospitable. Now, this given to hospitality, it's a strong expression in the Greek. It means that you're actually following after where that need is. Um, this is a qualification for elders in Titus chapter 1, verse 8. They're to be hospitable men. But it's also a gift of the Spirit. Uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians uh, 12 where hospitality is mentioned as a gift. I could be wrong. Um, but, uh, you know, so we're all called to be hospitable, right? Uh, but we're, there's also the gift that we can cry out for uh, when it's needed so that we can have this extraordinary, supernatural uh, presence of the Holy Spirit in our hospitality. Now, Paul is not just urging the Romans to practice hospitality, but the language speaks of pursuing hospitality. Not waiting for people to come to us, but rather we run to them, given to finding the need uh, for hospitality. And Hebrews 13 just has this great uh, possibility, Hebrews 13, 12, where it says, don't forget to entertain strangers, 
For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Can you imagine? I think that still happens to this day. Just opening up your home, opening up your refrigerator, giving of your time, your effort, your resources, even to strangers. Uh, Of course, walking in the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and the discernment of the Holy Spirit, but seeking after hospitality. In Luther's day, there were two women uh, that uh, were kind of called saints back in the day. But of course, we know that you're either a saint or you're an ain't. You know, if you're in Christ, you're a saint. It's not like you have to have the Pope tell you you are. Um, But these gals, Anastasia and Natalie, uh, they would do um, a lot of effort by visiting prisoners and encouraging martyrs. That was their ministry, to go into the prison and and show hospitality, bringing gifts, bringing resources to people that were about to offer their lives up um, on the cross um, on behalf of the Lord. So uh, the early church fathers would experience this this hospitality ministry going on. Uh, One of the early church fathers' name was Origen or Oregon. I'm not sure what the great pronunciation is. Uh, He was a scholar. He was a theologian in the early church. Uh, He was from Alexandria, Egypt, which was one of the greatest, uh, had the greatest library of the day. Uh, Very knowledgeable, but he said, we're not just to receive the stranger when he comes to us, but actually to inquire after him and look carefully for strangers to pursue them and search them out everywhere, lest perchance somewhere they might sit in the streets or lie without a roof over their head. I think that's good wisdom from the church father. And he's not telling us anything that Jesus didn't tell us or that Paul didn't call us to in pursuing hospitality. And you know, we're coming to that season where perhaps in our church, we've seen it in the past, uh, we'll have individuals that don't have a place to lay their head at night and a place to stay warm uh, during the coldest hours of the day. And, you know, last year we were going through a period of time with um, someone in our church who uh, was going to be sleeping outside in the cold and in the snow. And, um, you know, as elders and on the financial board, we're working with this person and, you know, we're, we're trying to practically help them find work and things. And there just wasn't a lot of success there. And, you know, I was really trying to be practical and, you know, well, if she doesn't work, then she doesn't eat and she doesn't live anywhere either, you know, and just kind of like, we've got to find a job and until she finds a job, she might just be sleeping outside. I mean, that's just the way it is, you know, and uh, I was sitting there at my table and I was eating Hawaiian chicken and rice, you know, macaroni and cheese, get a job, you know, and and as I was talking, the Lord just like went boop and like touched my heart and I just started bawling. I'm going from and I just start crying and Lindsay sitting there with me, you know, uh, and chicken rice falling out of my mouth. I mean, I just, it's just, it's a biography. I'm going to write it down sometime, you know, and, and Lindsay looks at me like, what just happened to you? And she goes, did, did the Lord touch your heart or something? And I just said, yeah, this lady's moving into our house tonight. And she moved into our house and she lived with us for a few months and she was part of our family Christmas. You know, we worked on building a bathroom in our basement to accommodate these types of needs. And, you know, I don't say that at all to puff us up. I mean, I'm, I'm the jerk that the Holy Spirit's just like, here's what you're going to do, you know? And, and so I encourage you guys to be part of this giving 
to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, seeking out ways that we can serve people uh, in their needs, whether it's home, whether it's a, a meal, whether it's shelter, whether it's a warm bed for a night. Um, be sensitive to the spirit. Seek out the wisdom of the elders with who this individual is. Do that. You know, you can be safe in doing that, but be given to it. Be given to hospitality. As John Chrysostom says, uh, if this person is a murderer or a robber or whatnot, does he therefore seem to thee not to deserve a loaf and a few pence? And yet your master causes even the sun to rise upon him. And do you judge him unworthy of food even for a day? For you're a disciple of him who desired the salvation, even of them that crucified him, who set upon the cross itself, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You are a servant of him who healed him, that smote him, who upon the cross itself crowned the man who had scorned him. And what can equal this? For both the robbers at first scorned him, still to one of these he opened paradise. Who are we a disciple of? Man, we are a disciple of a merciful master and a very hospitable master, even to some of the least of these. And so John Stott kind of sums up verses 9 through 13 by saying, what a comprehensive picture of Christian love Paul gives us. Love is sincere, discerning, affectionate, and respectful. It is both enthusiastic and patient, both generous and hospitable, both benevolent and sympathetic. It is marked by both harmony and humility. Christian churches would be happier communities if we all loved one another like that. You know, we do give to the world. We do sometimes open homes up to the world. But I really encourage this type of love within the church, you know, especially those of the household of faith, to look to those, look around you. There's people that are new here that have never been invited over to somebody's home for lunch or for dinner. There's people here that are, you know, struggling physically and they need help, you know, um, hanging that door in their house or painting that wall. Uh, they need a meal. And so be vigilant and looking around at who needs this type of Christian love, uh, this community and loving one another like this. You know, uh, you might be thinking, well, someone else will invite that new person out to lunch. And, you know, the ir irony of it is that someone else is thinking that someone else is going to invite that person out to lunch. And then it just never happens. And so we just encourage you, open up your homes, open up your tables, uh, and uh, be part of this hospitality, uh, sharing with the needs of the saints. As we move on through verses 14 uh, today, and just in stopping at the end of verse 14, we begin a list of people that are going to need this type of costly love. And verse 14 starts out with, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So who are we to love? Well, first of all, it's those that persecute us, that ensue us and pursue us. And literally the language speaks of someone who will hunt for you to end you. So who do we bless? We bless those that are hunting us down for our demise. Those that are opposing you, that are actively campaigning your pain. One type of persecution might be suffering as a Christian because of a government that's oppressive or a people group. 
Uh, you know, two-thirds of the world is persecuted uh, by their government uh, for their faith in Christ. And we're to remember them, Hebrews tells us, as if we were chained right there with them. But in, in Prineville, there's a bit more of that subtle persecution, the intellectual persecution. And it's good to know what God says to do in the midst of persecution so that when it happens, we, we behave rightly as Christ would have us behave. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 verse 11 says in the Beatitudes that uh, you're blessed. Blessed are you when people insult you or falsely say all kinds of insults because of me. Uh, You can be very happy. He goes on to say, because this is how they persecuted and treated the prophets who were before me. You're partaking of their suffering, just like Elijah, just like Isaiah, um, you know, just like Stephen and the Apostle Paul, we are, uh, whenever we're intellectually persecuted, when we stand up for morality, when we stand up for sexual purity, when we stand up for same-sex marriage, when we stand up uh, against abortion, and we're called archaic, and we need to go put our Viking hat on because that's about the generation we seem to be living in, you know, or when we're told that we're so old school or live on another planet, and we're just dismissed intellectually by our peers, what do we do to those people that have mistreated us in that way? Well, we bless them. We bless them when we suffer by them. And this is the way that Jesus lived. We know it in 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is the way that uh, the apostles behaved when they were persecuted. If you look at chapter 5 of the book of Acts, um, Peter and John had been arrested and put in prison for leading a revival in the temple uh, yard. And they were commanded that they were never to preach the name of Jesus again. And they were beaten up. And uh, as they were let go... Uh, After commanding them never to speak the name of Jesus at the end of verse 40, they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Has any, you know, have you been persecuted, even in a little way, intellectual persecution? Man, there should be joy that comes out that, wow, I was counted worthy to suffer for my Lord, just like he said I would. Because he tells us those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Persecution is just one of many opportunities to overcome evil. We get to bless those that persecute us. And if we're not blessing them, we're cursing them, even on the inside, thereby becoming persecutors ourselves. And that's not at all what the Lord would have of his children. Let's look in Luke chapter 6, verse 32. It says, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much back But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. You know, so awesome, we only bless those that bless us. We talked about that last week. Last week, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. You compliment me, I'll compliment you. That is, that's not the Lord's method. God's economy is so much different than the world's. And he says, I want you to love the people that aren't loving you. 
I want you to love the people that aren't lovable. I want you to give to the people and you can just maybe count on you're never going to get anything back on this side of eternity. That's my economy. That's my economy. And he led by example uh, uh, in us in that. And so as we're in the midst of persecution, uh, there's an important question to ask, who is our real enemy in the midst of this? Is it the liberals or the fascists or the radical feminists? Is it the pro-choicer or the evolutionist or the homosexual? Are those our enemies? What does Ephesians tell us? What does Paul tell the Thessalonians? He says, you know, we're, we not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against all the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Our battle isn't against the abortion doctor. Our battle isn't against the, the liberal candidate. That's not where our battle lies. As 2 Timothy tells us, these men, they've been snared by the devil and they're being taken captive by him to do his will. And so how should we be praying for these people? How can we free them? By cursing them? Not by cursing them. That's not going to do anything. We're to pray that God will set them free. We're to show them the love of Jesus. Show them the example of how Christ loved us. We can show them that. But, you know, planting a bomb at the clinic or doing a drive-by, it's not going to show the love of Jesus. And so we could respond with option one, which would be cursing. You know, that, that speaks of doom and pronouncing doom upon people. There's an old Chinese proverb that if your enemy wrongs you, by each of his children a drum. I can only imagine the fallout from that. We don't want to pronounce people's dooms and have a whole bunch of drum sets in their living room. That wouldn't show Christ-like love. The temptation is to be like the sons of thunder and call down fire from heaven, blasting the culture. That's not the method of the Lord. The method of the Lord is serve them, bless them, love them, lay your life down for them. This is option two, not cursing, but blessing. Bless, the word bless here is eulogio, which means to eulogize. And we, of course, know it from funerals when we speak well and fondly of the person that's passed on. But it speaks even more to that in the language. It spe you know, we're speaking well of the people, but we're showing kindness to them and causing them to prosper. So those that persecute us, we cause to prosper. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Did you catch those verbs? Love, bless, do good, and pray for those that are persecuting you. Love them. Love them. Our temptation is to just not do anything bad to them, to refrain from doing evil from or, or against them. But that's not what the Lord says to do. He says, I want you to just not, not do anything wicked to them. I want you to actually will their good, make their good happen. I want you to actively seek and pray for their benefit. 
Now, not what they think their benefit would be, and not even what you think their benefit would be, but what God knows their benefit would be. At the moment, they are estranged from Christ, and what would be best for them is to be reconciled to their creator. And so we pray, and we serve, and we love to that end. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.12, when, when we are reviled, we bless people. That's hard to do. That's a tall order. We need the Holy Spirit. God makes friends out of enemies through love. And Jesus is, was mentioned by Chrysostom, prayed that his enemies would be forgiven and knew that they didn't know what they were doing. Stephen, when he was martyred in Acts seven sixty, knelt down with one of his last breaths as Saul was bashing his head in with rocks. And he cried out, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Those that are persecuting us think they are doing the right thing, but they're just held captive by the wicked one. Don't figure, uh, excuse me, don't fight the way that they fight. The world knows how to fight that way. The, the world knows how to take revenge, and they do it much better than we do. So don't fight the way they fight. Don't fight dirty, but fight through prayer. Fight through blessing. Fight through love. And so, Kendra, why don't you come on up? Worship team, come on up. And we're just going to close uh, today, of course, taking communion. But as we focus on the mercy of God, taking his body that was broken for the forgiveness of sins and the blood that was shed for the remission of sins, we find in that forgiveness and in the atonement and as we sang earlier in one of our songs he can move the mountains he's conquered the grave he can do anything we can cry out today for just that same conquering power in our life that we would be steadfast in prayer that we would rejoice in hope that we would be patient in tribulation, that we would distribute to the needs of the saints, that we would be given to hospitality, and that we could copy Jesus, that when he was persecuted and martyred and murdered, he didn't revile in return. He didn't lash out harsh, hateful statements, but he loved, he forgave, Look to the thief on the cross who an hour earlier had been spitting at him and jeering at him. And, and he just said, man, today you'll be with me in paradise. These are tall orders, all of these practical statements and calls. And not one of us is strong enough in our own. On our best day of white knuckling it, we will fall short. And so as we take communion and we remember the one who brought great and radical provision for sin, we can remember the one who brings great and radical provision for Christian behavior. Lord, that we could truly copy you. We want to be imitators of God as dear children. We want to talk like you talked and walk like you walked. And we want to have your style, Lord. We want to just have your, your loving demeanor. 
We want to have just your glasses on, Lord, and look through your lenses and see what you see. When you and we see just the, the hurting person, Lord, that we would give our resources to them and share in their sufferings, Lord, the, the brother or sister that's just suffering, God, that we would suffer with them. Hard to do, Lord. We love our comfort. We love our luxury. We love our hobbies. And we just know that this is all really costly love. But Lord, make us lovers. Make us lovers, God. You guys can come forward during this last song and take the elements of communion. And if you... if you. Uh, are trying to think of how you can accomplish all of what's been taught today, but you've never been born again. You've never been saved. You've never placed Jesus at the the top of your life as Lord and as Savior, as Master, and the one who's redeemed you from your sin. Man, don't even try to accomplish these things. You'll fall short. But my exhortation to you today is come to the cross, come to the table, And remember the blood and body of Jesus that was poured out for you, that you wouldn't have your blood shed and your body broken. He did it for you and received the power to to be like him in all of these ways. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.